we should pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given us. And thank you for uh, filling this day already with so many good things. I thank you for the warm sunshine. God, I thank you for even as I was sitting here listening to the sound of the birds outside this room. God, thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing, the people we've been able to see, uh, the prayers that we've been able to send up, and now, God, to have the sort of icing on the cake to be under the preaching of Your Word. Not under a preacher, God, as much as preaching of Your Word. So we ask that You would be faithful and uh, as You always are, and that Your Word would go out now clearly and it would do great works as it searches the hearts of everybody who's listening and including the speaker. God, I pray that Your Spirit would go with Your Word and use it in great ways and in deep ways in, in all of us here. So many of us are gathered together here today because we love You and we want to worship You. And so uh, we also know though that we need Your help even to worship You. So please, God, uncloud our minds and give us... Uh, a good understanding today and open ears and open hearts so that Your work can be done. God, give us an eye to love and to serve and to minister those around us. And uh, come now in a mighty way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is, the, uh, this is what we've been waiting for in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, we've been moving towards this reunion and it's finally here. So, really an emotional chapter. Uh, an exciting chapter. And uh, it's good to finally get here. God is doing, in, in the story we've been reading, uh, God is doing big things and He's doing smaller things. Uh, he's doing big things in chapter 45 and He's doing some smaller things in chapter 45. I mean, the big things God is doing is that God is moving forward with His master plan of redemption. So this is God's big master plan. And everything is a part of God's big master plan. Everything. Even these things that you see as insignificant in your life are all a part of God's big master plan of redemption. So nothing happens that is not a part of God's plan. Nothing happens that surprises God. Maybe another way to think of that. Nothing happens to which God has to adjust His plan. God is not on like plan F right now. Well, I had plan A, but I got all screwed up. So plan B, C, D, and here we are. No, this is God's plan A. God's plan A. So everything is a part of God's master plan of redemption. It's really cool when you read the Bible and you read these narrative texts like the book of Genesis, you're seeing how God actually is working out in time His plans of redemption. So there's big things going on like Judah being born and Judah's the next in the family line and one day in his family line is going to come the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, big things are happening in that God needs to preserve His family, His people, and keep them from intermingling with other people and becoming pagan like those around them, which is what they would do in Canaan. So God's solution is He needs to get them for 400 years isolated as slaves in Egypt alongside another nation that doesn't want to have anything to do with them. So God is moving them into Egypt. And you see today, they're going to get moved into Egypt. And it's actually really good news right now, but for those of you that know the rest of your Old Testament, it's like a dark cloud kind of hanging. Because you know that it's going to be a while before they get out of Egypt and back to the promised land. And there's going to be another Pharaoh that's going to come down the road who's not nearly as kind as this Pharaoh and doesn't love the Hebrews the way the, 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 this Pharaoh does. So God's got big, big plans. Big things are happening. 
But then there's smaller things, not small things. Then God is doing smaller things, like He is reconciling this little broken family. That's what we're going to see God do today. As a part of a big plan. But then there's a little smaller plan that God is working. And He's going to take this family that is the quintessential dysfunctional family. It doesn't get worse than this. You're like, well, I've got a, my family. My family is messed up. But we all have messed up things in our families. We, we really do. We all are our own little Jerry Springer show, right? <laughs> all of us have dysfunction and we've got things that aren't the way that they ought to be. But, but, but most of you, most of you are not like, you know, when I, was a, when I was a kid, my family sold me into slavery. I'm guessing none of you, none of you were auctioned off down at Denio's on a Saturday afternoon when you were 17 years old. So it could always get worse, right? I mean, this is really bad what's happened in this family. I mean, this is not a family that you expect to ever be together again. You don't ever expect reconciliation. I mean, completely miraculous. But that's a smaller thing that God is doing is He is healing this broken little family. And, and God is always doing that in your life too. Right? God's doing bigger things and He's doing smaller things. He's doing things to you that may seem small, may seem insignificant, or they may seem like a really big deal. A prayer is answered here uh, the way you hoped it would be answered. A prayer is answered here not really the way that you hoped it would be answered. And sometimes you see how God is working things out for your good, like right away. And then other times you've got to trust. Remember, God's doing bigger things. He's doing bigger things. And His bigger things are always good, and they're always great. They're always loving, they're always kind. And He's always working, he's always working that plan. So we're reminded of that as we read this. By God's providence, these brothers, well, that's going to be a big word today. We'll, we'll talk more about it. But by God's providence, the brothers of Joseph's welfare, right? their very welfare now rests in the hands of an Egyptian lord who unbeknownst to them is their brother Joseph, who over 20 years before was sold by them into slavery. And to this point, Joseph has hidden his identity, and he has hidden his identity in order to test his brother's repentance. He's trying to figure out, is reconciliation even an option? Can our relationship be restored? Can I trust them? And so he has been, Matthew 7 would describe this, he's been examining the fruit on the tree. So God says that people are like trees. Y'all are like trees. And the kind of fruit that is on your tree, it gives insight into what kind of tree you are and what kind of roots you have, right? So if there's pears hanging on you, you got pear roots. If there's apples hanging on you, there's apple roots. If there's good fruit, you got good roots. If there's bad fruit, you got bad roots. So you can tell a lot by looking at the fruit in a person's life. What's coming out of their mouth? What kind of behavior is happening over the long term? What kind of choices are they making? What kind of decisions are they making? What is, all of these things, it's all fruit that you examine and you actually learn what's inside a person. Actually, you get an idea of where their heart is. You, you can't make final judgments necessarily the way God can, but you can draw conclusions, right? And you can make some judgments as to where the person's heart is. That's what he's doing. So these trees walk in before him, right? These trees are standing before him. He's like, oh, I, I know these trees. I know them. And they're bad trees. Really bad. Nasty, ugly trees. Here's a piece of fruit. It's selling your brother into slavery. That's a bad one. That's a bad one. There's bad things going on inside this guy if that's what's coming out of him. So here they show up 20 years later. Let's look at the fruit. What do you like now? How do you talk? How do you think? How do you treat your brother now? How do you treat your dad how do you treat your family? How do you treat one another? And he's, he's been watching them for months now. And while Joseph has been testing his brother's repentance, God has been bringing them to repentance through six things at least we've seen God do. Right? Deprivation, number one. Deprivation, the pain of physical and material wanting. God brought a famine to them. God's hand is behind the famine. Bible 
tells us so. God decides when there's famines and not. Does disaster come upon a city or upon a people unless the Lord has willed it, Isaiah tells us? He's using deprivation, making them desperate. Harsh words and treatment, number two. He brought harsh words and treatment. Third, solitude. Fourth, necessity. Right? Unavoidable and unalterable circumstances. Number five, kindness. Genuine affection. And number six, the breaking of their, we looked at this last week, their self-confidence. At their moment of, of, of ultimate self-confidence, God just, just crushed them. Just took it all away. Heading back to Egypt. We're good. Look at this. We just ate at the king's... Who would ever thought guys like us who've done the things that we've done would sit at the king's table and be sent back home with money and grain? I mean, life is going really well. And guess what? We never had to deal with our sin. Never had to confess our sin. Never had to tell dad. We were able to hide it. Able to stuff it. Do some good deeds. Cover it up. Life goes on. So our self-confidence was at an ultimate high. And then God comes and just takes it all away. The, the, the silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And if anyone thought they were innocent and had nothing to worry about, it was Benjamin. All of them now hauled back to Egypt. And what is the conclusion that they draw? God's not letting us go. We're not getting out of this. We are guilty. We may not be guilty of stealing this cup, but we're guilty men. We're guilty. So at the end of chapter 44, we saw the change in Joseph's brothers, particularly and representatively in Judah, who is the forerunner here of Jesus Christ. So let's just read that plea again from Judah. This is Judah's move. Listen to this changed man. When we went back, my Lord, and when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless... Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So there he was, Judah, a changed man. The one who 20 years earlier had come up with the plan to discard his little brother, now offers himself as a substitute that his little brother may go free with the rest of his brothers for their good and for the good of his father back home. Transformed man. And now chapter 45. And Joseph will here very quickly reveal his identity, his theology, and his plan. So here it is. Joseph is going to reveal his identity. Then he's going to reveal his theology. And then he's going to reveal his plan. Verses 1-3, through Joseph reveals his identity. Then Joseph, this is right after Judah's speech and we just read, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? 
But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Overwhelmed by emotion, joyful emotion, Joseph cannot even control, cannot even contain himself anymore. So he asks everyone to leave the room and then weeping uncontrollably, he reveals himself to his brothers. Now why did he have everyone leave the room? Well, to protect his brothers. To protect his brothers. Joseph is loved and admired and respected especially by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. How would Pharaoh respond when he learned that the, this tragedy had happened to Joseph as a boy and the men who were responsible for it were now in his palace? So he protects everyone, the details, and sends them out of the room. They're going to hear the crying and the weeping but they're not going to hear all the details. And he says just two things. I am Joseph. Reveals his identity. Can you imagine the look on the brothers' faces? I mean, here they are with as good Hebrews, right? I'm sure they're big beards. And here's Joseph now as a playing Egyptian with no facial hair, clean shaven, adorned in royal clothing. I am Joseph. And he says one other thing. Is my father still alive? Now he knows his father is alive. He's already asked that. And he's already been told. His father is alive. What his question means here is, is my father lively? Is he mentally with it? Is he, he knows how old, is he senile? Is he uh, engaged physically, emotionally? Is there any life left in him? Of course, he's asking that question, as we see, because he, he wants to know, am I going to be able to have a reconciled relationship with my dad? Am I going to be able to see him again? And will he know me and recognize me? Will we be able to have a conversation? Will we be restored in our relationship? Will we be reunited? So he moves right to this. He says, I am Joseph, and he has missed his beloved father for over 20 years now. Is my father still alive? And then verse 3, His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I'll bet. <laughs> dismayed. We can't imagine the myriad of emotions that were going through their minds as they stood before Joseph. And I'm pretty sure the first one was not that they were excited to see him. Now this is not, I don't think they were thinking this is a good thing. I mean, we're going to see they were terrified. Oh. Really? Joseph? <laughs> we're good, right? <laughs> no harm, no foul. Let's let bygones be bygones. We're all these weird things that we say that mean nothing. <laughs> Let's just move on. <laughs> I find that phrase funny. They were dismayed at his presence. So he reveals his identity. Now, now next, and we'll spend a, a bit of time here. This is the everything else is sort of describing what's happening, and this is sort of the 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 marrow or the meat of the, this passage. Because here Joseph, he's revealed his identity and now he reveals his theology. Really interesting. He's going to reveal his theology, his doctrine. He's going to express what he believes to be true about God 
and how God interacts with His creation. And He's going to disclose that to the brothers. Verses 4-8. through So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Well, some of you, this may sound very strange. What is Joseph talking about? What does he mean in verse 8 when he said, it was not you who sent me here, but God? Is he confused? I'm pretty sure it was the brothers. Was, was God the one who threw him in the pit? No. Was God the one who negotiated with the Ishmaelites for a price to sell him? No, it was the brothers. Was it God who stood as the caravan went on its way to Egypt and waved and said, good riddance? No, that was the brothers. So the brothers were the ones who sent him to Egypt. Very clearly. But now Joseph says something very different. Emphatically, it was not you who sent me here. God sent me here. What's he doing? Well, he's revealing his theology. He's revealing his doctrine. What he believes to be true about God. Not to be a smart aleck. But Joseph was a Calvinist before John Calvin was born. Here's what I mean. First, Joseph tries to dissipate his brother's sense of guilt by referencing the good providence of God. You see what he's doing? He's actually trying to comfort his brothers. (laughs) Sort of the opposite of what you would expect, right? He's trying to not dissipate their guilt. They're guilty and he says it. But he's trying to dissipate their sense of guilt. Hey, listen, I'm okay. I'm alright. And here's how I'm alright. Here's my perspective on the thing. I mean, he says very clearly to them in verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You're responsible. You sent me to Egypt, right? You sold me to Egypt. That's his opening line. I am Joseph, right? And you sold me into Egypt. But, you weren't the only cause of me getting to Egypt. Do you hear what he's saying? You're not the only reason that I'm in Egypt. In fact, God was in control even of you when you were selling me into slavery to accomplish His good purposes in such a way that I can say that God actually sent me to Egypt. Not, it doesn't say. He doesn't say, you sent me to Egypt and then God had to figure out how to take this bad thing that you did and apply it to His plan. It does not say that. It does not say that God used the evil thing that you did and brought something good out of it. In fact, in Genesis 50, He will say you had meaning behind it and God had meaning behind it. So you both caused this. You're Both of you had hands behind it. So He says both are true. You sent me to Egypt. God sent me to Egypt. Verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for... And listen to what he says about the sovereignty of God. Verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you 
to preserve for you a remnant on earth. God sent me before you to keep alive for you many survivors. And then verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. And God has made me ruler over all of Egypt. Here's how this works. God did not force these men to take the actions that they did. So what are the nuts and bolts of this? How did they send them him? And how did God send him? How, how is this all true? How does this work? Well, it doesn't mean that God forced them to take the actions they did. God did not make these men sell their brothers into slavery. They did exactly what they intended to do. They did exactly what they wanted to do. There was no coercion involved. And it was completely according to the will of God. Both true. And Joseph spells it out as the victim, if you will. You sent me here. You're responsible. God sent me here. You meant it for evil, Genesis 50, verse 20, but God meant good. The London Baptist Confession of Faith is helpful in chapter 3, section 1, where it says this in regards to God's will. God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. That's the first part. That's God sent me to Egypt. God has determined all things that come to pass. Yet, and here's the second part of that paragraph in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, God's hand is behind all things, and yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears His wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing His decree. This is a very biblical statement that holds all the biblical truths in tension as they should be held. What does the first part say? Everything that happens is according to God's will. Nothing is happening outside of God's will. It's all according to His plan. And of course, the first thing that we want to say that's not true to is not the sinful actions of men. Right? That's the first. I'm not, no, that, everything may be according to God's will, but not the sinful actions of man. What did Joseph just tell us? God sent me to Egypt. God sent me to Egypt. What is he saying? Everything that happens, including the sinful actions of my brothers, was according to the plan of God. Now when we hear that truth, we want to dismiss it because it creates all kinds of problems in our mind. And that's what the second part of that paragraph addresses. Everything that happens is according to God's will. And yet, well, does that mean that God is the author of sin? No. No. And yet God is not the author of sin? Does that mean that free will does not exist and people don't make free choices? That people don't do what they want to do and have no freedom and God is forcing and coercing them like puppets? You've heard that? Because if you tell me everything's according to God's will, even the sinful actions of men are even predetermined by God, then you're telling me that we're puppets and we don't make free choices. No. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. That's what that means. Nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. In other words, is God a cause behind these things? Yes. That doesn't mean there aren't other causes. But they all fit in God's cause. If you want to read further on that, I would recommend chapter 3 in the London Baptist Confession of Faith of God's Decree and chapter 5 
of divine providence. Turn to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I already quoted it, but let's just read it. Listen to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is a, a repeating, a recapitulating of the themes that we just read from Joseph in chapter 45, but he summarizes in verse 20. 19, let me start with 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Okay. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You all have terrible things that happen in your life. I have terrible things that happen in my life. And we have people who sin grievously against us. The way Joseph was sinned against. And we need to understand what Scripture says about the hand of God in all of that. And what Joseph says, what God's Word says, is that when that happens to you, there is evil that people mean toward you. There is evil that Satan means toward you. Hates you. Wants to destroy you wants to ruin you. And at the same time, there is a good God who loves you and also means for this excruciating thing to happen to you because He loves you. And it's for your good. Now does that always, let me ask you Christian, does that always make total sense when you look around. No, good. No one is nodding. No one is nodding. Good. Because it doesn't. We're not working our way through life spiritually apart from faith. This requires faith, doesn't it? What is faith? God says it. I believe it. Believing what God says. Now some people ask, why would God, I've heard this question before, maybe you have, why would God use sinful men and sinful deeds to carry out His plan? Why? Why would God use sinful men to carry out His plan? Why would God use their sinful actions to carry out His plan? And the answer is, that's all He has to work with. I mean, right? That is, that's all he has to work with. Why doesn't he just use the good guys? Well, because there aren't any. There's a, there's a supply and demand issue there. There just aren't any. So everything God accomplishes is going to involve sinful men and their sinful actions. It just is. Here's the point that I think Joseph brings us to before we read on, and that is that theology sustains and comforts people. Uh, so just a, just a quick plea here. Okay? If you've been coming to Veritas for a while, you know that theology is important to us. You know that sound doctrine is important to us. And uh, it is not important to us because we're interested in being the people who are right. It is not important because we want to be known as the uh, uh, academic church. Uh, it is important because good theology is necessary for our lives. It's all practical. It's all practical. Do we need right views of God? Yes, we need right views of God. Do we need right views of God so that we can live in a way that pleases Him? Yes. Do we need right views of God so we can even make it? We do. We do. We need to understand God. Some of you may have thought or, or, or may even think 
the doctrines that are brought up here. Doctrines like providence and predestination and election. I mean, these are the kinds of doctrines that are brought up in chapter 45. Some of you may have thought that those are just useless doctrines, that these are, are these sort of high doctrines that are useful only for professors and people who want to argue, right? And I don't want to talk about those things, and I'm not interested in talking about those things. Is that how Joseph uses them? Joseph uses them to say, this is how I have comforted myself for 20 years. You want to know how I got out of bed every morning? The providence of God. The predestination of God. The election of God. The exhaustive sovereignty of God. You want to know how I put one foot in front of the other? The providence of God. You want to know how? This is what he's telling his brothers. You want to know how I'm not a bitter mess right now? You want to know why I don't hate you? And I'm not seething with anger against you? Well, let me tell you about my theology. My doctrine. I believe in the providence of God. I believe in the predestination of God. I believe in the election of God. And it is not some high doctrine that is meant only for those who want to split hairs and argue and discuss in a classroom. It is very practical and it's what I have needed every day of my life. And now he applies it to his brothers in an effort to comfort them. It has sustained me and now may it comfort you. It's how he was able to forgive his brothers. It's how he stayed tender toward his brothers and not bitter. He rested in the providence of God. It kept him alive and well. And he uses this doctrine now to lessen his brother's sense of guilt. These boys are repentant. It is clear to him there's no need to tighten down the screws anymore. I mean, he's done that for quite a while. But there is no need to do that anymore. So he points to their sin and their responsibility. You sold me to God, but also to the overriding, wise, not arbitrary, providence of God. So this is very practical. Some of you, just that doctrine is practical right now. Just knowing, okay, I've got this going on. How do I get up tomorrow morning? Well, you need a good understanding of the providence of God. That you're not outside of God's box right now. That you're not outside of His plan right now. That God hasn't forgotten you. That God has not abandoned you. That bad things happening to you, the worst things happening to you, are not a sign of that, Christian. They are not a sign of that. They are a part of your sanctification. They are a part of God's glory. They are a part of His plan. Now that may not be enough to get you skipping out the door you know, and, and singing songs about Jehovah Jireh, but it's enough to put one foot in front of the other and it's enough to get out of bed and it's enough to keep doing what God has called you to do. Sometimes that's just all you're going to be able to do and all you're going to be able to muster, but you need good theology to get there. So just that doctrine might be helpful for some of you for right now. But there's also a very important... Port, important. <laughs> Who is that? Homer Fudd or something? Who taught him important? Oh no, now we're in trouble. I don't even know where I was. <laughs> mm. What? Yeah, Porky Pig. Right, here we go. Oh, Lord. <laughs> train, train off tracks. Uh, that specific doctrine may be really helpful for some of you right now. But there's also something for us to hear as we're dealing with one another as Christians, as we're counseling one another as Christians. For those of you that didn't come last Wednesday, I strongly encourage you, if you can make it on Wednesday nights, make it on Wednesday nights. The very thing we're talking about, how do, we, how do we comfort one another? How do we encourage one another? How do we challenge one another? How do we disciple one another? How do we live together as the body of Christ? And this is what Joseph, he, Joseph is discipling his brothers now. He's using good theology to comfort his brothers and to explain the last 20 years and to give them a biblical perspective. So here's the point. When you're dealing with other Christians, what is one thing that they need? They need theology. They need theology. 
I don't recommend you necessarily have that be first base. Right? So Christians can go to extremes. Now, if somebody is suffering, if somebody is in pain, if someone has just learned of a tragedy, okay, and they're just completely overwhelmed, I'm not saying you say, hello, please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 45. I want you to know that you're exactly where God wants you to be right now. Don't be an automaton. Don't be emotionless. Don't be detached from their grief. What are we supposed to do as Christians? People are happy, we're happy with them. People are mourning and sad, what do we do? We're mourning and sad with them. So what's the first thing you should do? Just real practical. What's the first thing you should do? Listen. Listen. I mean, even I as a pastor, if I'm walking into something like that, I am certainly thinking about what theology needs to be talked about. I'm thinking, what kind of biblical perspective do I need to make sure that this person has? What is the, the real meat that I'm going to be able to give them to comfort them? What substantial do I have to offer them? But the first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to say, how are you doing? I'm going to listen. Maybe cry with them. Just be sad with them. Is there anything you need? What can we do? And then I'm going to try to use wisdom when the time is right. It's appropriate. We get down to business. We're going to open God's Word together. We're going to make sure that they have something substantial to anchor themselves into right now. So you've got to do both. You've got to do both. Now I'm guessing that more often than not, we can be really good at the, um, and I'm so thankful for this, at drawing alongside people and putting our arm around them and being there for them. I know a lot of you are wonderful with that. It's, it's so important. Some of you need to grow in that, but many of this just comes natural, right? You, just, you can be that person. But we also need to understand that that, 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 that will, will be empty in the long run and unhelpful in the long run if we don't bring God's Word alongside people and say, hey, can I, can I encourage you with some truth? Can I remind you of some Scripture? Can I share some verses with you? Can I pray with you this way? It's what Joseph's doing as he ministers to his brothers. So he's revealed his identity. He's revealed his theology. And now he reveals his plan. Verses 9-15. through 15, Hurry! Go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And that, after that, his brothers talked with him. One small thing to point out. Turn back to chapter 37. This was when Joseph first shared the dreams with his brothers, you remember? And there's a very important verse, verse 4 of chapter 37, that clued us into the condition, the status of the relationship between Joseph and his brothers, and it was this. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And if you remember, what the text is actually saying is that they had not a word for him. They had nothing to say to him. Did not even want to talk with him. Now Moses, the writer, expects you to remember that when you read chapter 45, the end of verse 15. After that, his brothers talked with him. What's happened? Restoration. Reconciliation. 
They're being brought back together. Verse 16. Now we learn of the Pharaoh's favor. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households. Come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Verse 21, The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Remember Joseph, the former Youngest brother in the household was sold for 20 shekels of silver. And here he gives the new youngest brother in the house 300 shekels of silver. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up, verse 25, out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. What a moment for Jacob. Couldn't, couldn't believe it. He just went numb. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. In conclusion, four parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Four parallels here between Joseph and Jesus. I bet some of you have already seen some of them here. Number one, Joseph knew his brothers before they knew him. And this is like Jesus and his people. Joseph knew his brothers before they knew him. While Joseph was mysterious to his brothers and they knew, he knew them and he recognized them. There was a point for many of you who are Christians where you did not know God, but God knew you. He knew you very well. He knows you very well now. Genesis 42.8, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. God knows us. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 speaks of this. God knew them. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. God knows you. He knows you before you know you. Before you hear the words coming out of your mouth, He hears the words coming out of your mouth. And knows you. But for many years, many of you, you didn't know Him. You didn't acknowledge Him. You didn't recognize Him. Isaiah 1.3 The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God knew His people for a time and they did not know Him. It's like Joseph and his brothers. John 1, 10-11 regarding the ministry of Jesus. He, that's Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. That's the irony. God knows us. God made us. And we don't know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. So God knows you. And He knows your sin. And He will expose your sin. 
Joseph knew his brothers before his brothers knew him. And Joseph knew their sin before they knew who he was and what he knew. And what did he do? He exposed their sin. And God will expose your sin. He will. Either in this life or at the judgment, it'll all be laid bare. Better now. Better now than later. Number two. Joseph loved his brothers when they did not love him. Like Jesus. Joseph loved his brothers when they did not love him. Now the brothers didn't know that Joseph loved him. They probably would have said something like, gee, you have a real crummy way of showing us how much you love us. Talking to us all nasty and planting evidence on us and throwing us in prison. Uh, that's how you love people. Thank you very much. I'll just say no thank you. But Joseph was, but what do we know is those behind the scenes. We know that Joseph was constantly acting in love toward his brothers. And he's not unlike Jesus. When Jesus looks down at Jerusalem, you remember that moving story and he weeps over Jerusalem because he knows the hearts of these people that are far from him and where they're going and where they're headed. Joseph excuses himself on two occasions and just cries and weeps over his brothers. Then he comes back and then he acts lovingly toward them. And he's moving them towards repentance. If Joseph did not love his brothers, he would have had them killed or he would have let them go on in their godless way all the way to hell. And remember who loved you first, Christian? Who loved you first? You didn't love God first. God has not chosen to save all those who loved Him. God's love is not a conditional love like that. God's salvation is not a conditional salvation like that. His election is not a conditional election like that. Where God looks at all of us and says, hey, I know you're totally depraved and I know you don't have a prayer, but hey, if any of you can pull it together, I'll go ahead and love you. (laughs) That is not it. You know, I'll love you first. I'll love you first. Choose you. That's what that means. Set my affection on you. I'll love you into loving me. And that's what he's done. Third, Joseph saved his brothers before they were aware of their salvation. That sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He saved them before they were aware of of his salvation. Charles Spurgeon said, and I'll read a quote from him in a second, that the condition of the brothers upon Joseph's revealing of his identity is the condition of every truly awakened sinner. Do you remember their response? His brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And when you get saved, that's how you feel. Like, you're not talking. (laughs) Your mouth is closed or wide open, right? And you're speechless before God. Because there's a moment, this is what happens when you become a Christian, when you're born again, when you're saved, and in a moment you're awakened. This is what happened with his brothers. And in that moment, you understand what you deserve and you understand what you receive all at the same time. And it's just just overwhelming. So you understand what you deserve, hell, alienation from God, and you understand grace, what you receive from Him at the same time, and you've got nothing to say. And this was the brothers' reaction. They knew that they were sinners without excuse who deserved nothing good, and they stood before the One with absolute power whom they had sinned against. And that's how we stand before God. Here's Charles Spurgeon's quote, borrowing from a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Same theme. To the awakened sinner. And he's going to describe the awakened sinner. There are two people in the world. Sinners and awakened sinners. So you're here this morning. There's no third category. We're all sinners. And you're either awakened to your sin and the grace of God or you're not. You're not. You can't have one without the other. To the awakened sinner, this also is a part of his misery. That he is entirely in the hands of that very Christ whom he once despised. 
For that Christ who died has now become the judge of the quick and the dead. He has power over all flesh that He may give eternal life to as many as His Father has given Him. The Father judges no man, but He has committed all judgment to the Son. Dost thou see this sinner? He whom thou despised is thy master. The moth beneath thy finger, which thou canst crush, and that cannot escape from thee, may well fear. But thus art thou beneath the fingers of the crucified Son of God. Today, he whom thou hast despised has thee absolutely at his will. He has but to will it, and the breath is gone from thy nostrils, and while yet in thy seat thou art a corpse. And more, at his will thou art in hell amidst its flames. Oh, what an awful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God, for even our God is a consuming fire. And we do need to feel that danger. Or we never cry out for salvation. Ever. Spiritually, the brothers were in the most danger when they felt good about themselves and their condition before God. Spiritually, the brothers were in the best place when they stood bare before God with no excuse. It's when they were at their best place spiritually. That's very counterintuitive, right? No, I feel good. I'm good. Everything's going well. Everything's going well. I'm happy. Life is happy. I'm not worried or fearful. There's nothing to be fearful of. That is not true. It's not true. We need truth. We need truth. And finally, number four. Joseph called his brothers when they would have preferred to run from him. Like Jesus, right? Oh, Jesus did not meet us halfway, please. Did not meet you or me halfway. He saw that we were seeking and we were coming to him and we were running after him and he said, me too. This is not the gospel. No, Joseph called his brothers when they would have preferred to run from him. They were terrified. Remember when Joseph revealed himself to them? They were terrified. And then in verse 4, what did he do? Remember what he said? Come near to me, please. And what does Jesus do with his sheep? Even when they're terrified and frightened. We understand our sin against him. We understand what we deserve in light of who we are and what we've done. And the thing that he says next to his children is not what you would expect. It is not, get out of here. It is not, you're filthy. Go away from me. But no, what does he say to his children? What does he say to his sheep? He says what Joseph said to his brothers when they were most terrified. He said, Come near to me, please. Come here. Yeah, you, we all know what you deserve. Check. We all know what you deserve. But listen, come here. You don't need to be afraid of me like that. I love you. I want you. I desire you. Come here please. Now what do we do? We do what Joseph's brothers do. We don't make a run for it. <laughs> right? The fears start to subside. We're overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. We go to Jesus. To their surprise, Joseph was not an angry king, but he was a loving brother who called to them as Christ does with His children. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for the words that You've given us today. We thank You for the 
the men and the women throughout Your Word, throughout history, that You bring before us and set before us as examples of Your loving kindness and tender mercies. God, help us as we read of these brothers who who deserved death. God, will You help us to relate to them? To see our sin in them? And then God, as we see the reaction of Joseph, His gracious reaction, would You turn our eyes to Jesus? To see that He is our brother who has called out to us to come near, please. God, You've spoken to us with tenderness and affection, kindness, with mercy and grace behind every word. God, to those whom You are calling today, I pray that they would respond. They would turn to You. They would see themselves in the hands of the living God. And they would cry out to You for mercy. And that by faith, God, we pray they would have it. Be honored in our time together as we remember the cross through communion and as we sing in gratitude to You. We love You and praise You and give You all honor. And we pray this in the great name of Your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.